Hello and welcome to another episode of Real Atheology. For this episode, we're delighted to offer up a fascinating interview with philosopher Dr. Evan Fales. Dr. Fales is a philosophy professor emeritus at the University of Iowa. He received his PhD in philosophy at Temple University in 1974, and his primary research interests are epistemology, philosophy of science, metaphysics, and, most relevant to today's discussion, philosophy of religion. I was visiting Iowa City this weekend with a good friend of mine, and Dr. Fales was gracious enough to sit down with me for an interview in his office. It was a great discussion. We covered a wide variety of topics. And so without further delay, here is an interview with Dr. Evan Fales. First, let me ask you, I feel that I can draw a pretty direct line between my current interest in philosophy of religion and my religious upbringing, and I'm wondering uh, if that is the case for you as well. What what kind of brought you to an interest in, in philosophy of religion? That's very complicated, actually, in, in my case. Um, let's see, a, a thumbnail would be this. My, my parents were uh, Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany, mm. came over here in the spring of 1940, I was born three years later. Um, by that point, they had converted to um, Quakerism, Society of Friends. And so, at least nominally, um, I was raised a Quaker. Uh, what that amounted to really was that uh, I was a it was up to me to find my own way. Right sure. from the start, I was when I was a little kid. My mm. parents, I think of as Sermon on the Mount Quakers. They they didn't preach much, but they practiced, uh, and that had a, quite a profound influence on me. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I, I we we didn't really attend a regular Quaker meeting because where my father got a job after the war, the local meeting was racist. I grew up on a traditionally black college campus. I I um, I was kind of occasionally thinking about such matters, but mm. uh, I wasn't really in any real sense religious. I would say by the time I was, I think, twelve, I had come to the conclusion that people who are religious are so because they're afraid of death. Um, a theory which uh, I wasn't the first to arrive at, and which it took me maybe 10 years to give up because the data don't support it very well. During high school and college, I decided that the three important disciplines that contained the secrets of the universe were physics, philosophy, and religion. I got mainly interested in physics, was a physics major in college. Okay. Um, and, and some of the work on causation you've you've done within philosophy of science. Yes, as yeah, which is to... where I actually wrote my, my philosophy dissertation. Okay. Um, so, that, But there was an interlude there before I wound up in graduate school in philosophy. And uh, then something happened that was, was really kind of had a, a major influence on me. 
Um, I got interested in religion while I was in graduate school, but in a kind of um, accidental way, which had to do with uh, an ethics course I took, which led me to get interested in sort of what the empirical data are with respect to how ethical systems work in different cultures on the ground. And I was interested enough in it that I took two graduate courses in anthropology, which required me to read pretty much the canon, late 19th century, 20th century stuff. And there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of data on um, moral systems as such, but what pretty much obsessed the anthropologists during this period was the origins of religion and what explains mm -hmm. religion. And I got, so I got interested in that, yeah. really interested in it, and um, kind of worked my way through a bunch of the major figures, decided what I thought was wrong and what I thought was right. Uh, in the meantime, uh, my best friend was studying religion at Chicago, the School of Religion at Chicago, and he was starting to work on the um, the Gospel of Matthew with a Jewish scholar at Chicago, quite somewhat interesting guy, Jay-Z Smith, who was sort of pioneering the use of anthropological methods as applied to the biblical texts. And I saw Daniel after some years, you know, and started to ask him about his work, and this light bulb went on. Oh, you can apply all this anthropological theory to the New Testament? Wow. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, I, I was really kind of excited about that. I, I read the Bible from beginning to end systematically, um, and I've been interested in that, fascinated in it ever since. Now, that that didn't yet get me to philosophy of religion per se. That happened, I think, while I was here. Um, I kind of shifted from philosophy of science through metaphysics, epistemology, okay. and I really like philosophy of religion because it's a crossroads discipline. Yeah. Where you get to play in the, the metaphysics of... sandbox and the epistemology sandbox Absolutely. and the ethics sandbox. So that's, but it was a, it was a long, long sort of there. journey, and I, I didn't um, get into it with uh, really some sort of strong, um, what should I say, some some strong uh, program or or um, set of predispositions. So everybody knows that you know the problem of evil is one of the you know, most popular challenges to believe in God. And this idea of the goodness of, of free will uh, is often used as the kind of go-to explanation, uh, at least with respect to moral evils, those evils which are the result of, uh, you know, failings of, of human persons. Mm -hmm. um, however, you've argued that, you know, even if we grant that moral freedom can go some distance, it doesn't actually solve the problem. And this is because God could have significantly lessened the evils in the world just by making us different kinds of persons. So rather than focus on particular instances of suffering or evil in the world, you actually have focused on the question of the kinds of persons we are in the first place and right. how that affects the distribution uh, and, and severity of evils in the world. And so I'm wondering what kind 
could could you talk a bit about what you see as the, the key problems with the kinds of persons we are uh, on a you know if, assuming a theistic worldview? What are the what do you, what do you see as the problems with the kinds of persons we are, and what improvements do you think um, can avoid uh, accusations of you know, being an affront to free will, for example? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, uh, Christian theists. Um, are almost universally um, on board with the notion that um, that we are flawed creatures, deeply flawed mm-hmm. creatures, and um, uh, so uh, they have, of course, a story to tell about why that is. Um, it's a kind of a difficult story to make sense of in the end, I think. Yeah, but in light of you know modern science and the larger narrative well i mean there there's uh, that yeah. um and there are there are other difficulties with the view in fact one is directly connected to the issues that i was raising and that is um supposing that on the sixth day as genesis one puts it uh god created human beings and then at the end of the day, he looked at the world of his creation and saw that it was good. So presumably Adam and Eve were created good mm-hmm. in, the, in the image of God. And they uh, were in intimate communion with God in a, a paradise. And they screwed up. Mm-hmm. Why? And of course, the... The short answer is, well, they had free will, to which the reply is, yeah, but they were created with a good will, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, and they they knew what God wanted of them and what they owed God, and so why why did they mess up? Right, especially Um, so quickly. Why didn't they free, yeah, (laughs) it doesn't take much time. Why why didn't they freely choose not to eat Mm -hmm. the fruit? of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, and so the question here, and, and by the way, Hume already worries about this in his that dialogues uh, near the end somewhere. But the question is, well, could God have made creatures that perhaps are very much like us, um, but unlike us, are both free, as free as we are, mm-hmm. and far less prone to evil. Yeah, so a difference in, in perhaps disposition, uh, aggressiveness. That's, that's, exactly, that's exactly the thought. And, um, I mean, this aggressiveness is not that hard to give some account of in evolutionary terms. Sure, sure. Um, but the the fact is that uh, amongst our closest evolutionary cousins are the chimpanzees and the bonobos, mm-hmm. and the chimpanzees are really quite aggressive just by nature. And the Bonobos are far more um, conciliatory. They um, work much harder just by nature at getting along. 
okay. with one another without overt aggression. Um, and a second observation is that, uh, as anybody knows who's had children, they are born with strong um, predispositions. Some of them are ornery. Some of them are really laid back. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a full gamut, and it doesn't take very long to to recognize this mm-hmm. about them. It's it's something that is prior to exposure to the environment, and then of course it interacts with the environment. Right. But it's a reasonable guess that the kids that are born with a kind of a, a naturally friendly, laid-back disposition will <clears throat> more easily be um, affected by their environment in ways that lead to an adulthood that is um, marked by kindness and generosity and, right. and so on. Uh, than the ones that seem to be born with a chip on their shoulder. And we don't for a moment think that the nice people are somehow less free. Yeah, it's just the, a matter of disposition. There's no affront to their ability to choose who they are as that's, a person. That's right. Yeah. Now, I mean, underlying all this is the deep question, what is it to have free will? But whatever right. whatever account you give of that, it seems to me it, it needs to remain uh, true to the fact that nice people are not less free than nasty people yeah. are. Um, and so God would not in any way have somehow imposed upon our freedom more than he may have anyway right. um, in um, making us a whole lot nicer. And if he had... Uh, things would be a lot better yeah. in this world. It'd be a whole lot less suffering. I was having a uh, dialogue with an individual uh, just about a month ago, where we were talking about this very issue, and I made up. I made the point where you know you, we can identify these isolated instances of evil, but but oftentimes they're not merely isolated instances. They're they're a, of a larger systemic issue. Um, so. You know, a lot of these large-scale organized evils that we think of, like you know, the Holocaust or you know, genocides in Darfur, a lot of this can come about by way of how easily morally manipulative or manipulatable we are as persons in certain circumstances, and right. I think this is also a, a kind of point in, in that favor. That's that's true. So it's, I mean, part of what it seems to me is a deep flaw in our character that needn't have been so, is um, a very surprisingly strong, um, well, to to use a colloquial phrase, uh, herd mentality. Mm. It It is remarkable how insecure people feel if they somehow get an identity that is sets them apart from the crowd, um, and and this has led to you know just no end of mischief. Yeah, it can be very easily manipulated by demagogues, as we know, uh, and it needn't have been uh, 
a characteristic of ours. I mean, we may, we may, I think, have been endowed with strong social instincts without, um, without, uh, this, um, this fear of uh, independence of thought. You know, one objection to this kind of line of argument, uh, would be to say, well, you know, with, with regard to the temperament, uh, issue, um, yeah, as, as you already mentioned, the, you know, Darwinian processes by which we have evolved are going to guarantee some large amount of aggression. I don't know if they would guarantee it, but in fact, make that's it the way it happened. Yeah. And, um, and with respect to intelligence, if God wanted to use evolution, then of course we, we might expect that it is going to be a gradual increase in, in our uh, cognitive capacities. Um, it seems to me like the omnipotence of God does a lot of damage to an objection like that, uh, where God is not, God didn't need to use uh, purely natural processes. These these kind of tendencies are going to be only naturally discriminatory, and so it seems like they, that kind of objection wouldn't go very far. Well, no, I mean, of course, um, some Christians reject the theory of the Darwinian theory of evolution right. altogether. Some don't. Um, but either way, it is generally true, at least of Orthodox Christians, that they hold roughly to the sort of um, story you have in Genesis, mm -hmm. that uh, we were created the mold of God, pretty, right. pretty, pretty good, and then then things screwed up, uh, and and that's why we are, admittedly, um, a a deeply um, troubled species. So, evolution aside, it seems as if, uh, from a Christian point of view, God could have stepped in, and um, just seen to it mm -hmm. that the the creatures He chose to be. Uh, his worshippers would be ones that were more worshipful, you know, more worshipful in the, sure. the full sense of the word. Yeah. Um, right. So, I mean, the the, the more uh, power you attribute to God, and the more knowledge you attribute to God, the harder it is to hold him uh, innocent right. with respect to you know, why things are in such a dismal state. Right. In your article in the Blackwell Companion uh, to the Problem of Evil a, a few years back, you build an argument around an interesting concept that you call uh, a perfect creature. Right. Um, so what, what is a perfect creature? Yeah, so the th this is in a way just uh, a natural outcome of of pushing this line of thought, pushing it further and further, yeah. uh, further, and thinking, well, you know, just how, how good could God make creatures, uh, assuming that He wanted to maximize value in the universe mm -hmm. uh, along these lines? And it struck me that it is really hard to find any sort of argument that forecloses on the possibility that God could create 
beings that are just exactly like him. Mm -hmm. uh, except for one feature, um, which is that, of course, trivially, they are created creatures, whereas God is uncreated. Um, but otherwise, they would be... Identical. Just like, like identical twins mm -hmm. to, to God. Um, and wouldn't that be a great world? Right. These are creatures that would be as free as God is. And now, by the way, I mean, this is a, a matter of some um, controversy among Christian philosophers and theologians, you know, is God free or isn't he? I, I personally happen to have views about freedom of the will, which are libertarian, mm -hmm. um, but along which, uh, or a consequence of which are that um, God is maximally free. And so perfect creatures would be maximally mm -hmm. free as well. However, like God, they would necessarily only will and do the very best. So God is essentially morally perfect, but he's morally free in the sense that he's not held bound by any kind of irrational desires or any kind of disposition yeah, and in, in that fact, sense. Uh, I mean, I, I, I um, situate myself in a, a long tradition that um, tries most fundamentally to understand freedom of the will as a matter of having the capacity to exercise uh, reason. Okay. Rational choice. In fact, for me, um, uh, the act of freely deciding just is the act of rationally deliberating. Okay. And God is m maximal in his ability to do that. He has right. maximum information. He has, um, you know, maximum power when it comes to seeing consequences mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And so he's maximally free. One of the, I think, uh, objections that would pop up into people's minds uh, upon hearing this kind of idea is the kind of threat to the uniqueness of God, right? Um, where they might raise an issue and say, well, uh, if God creates other all-powerful persons, um, don't we run a risk of, you know, a uh, an immovable object coming up against an unstoppable force, essentially. Yeah, and the answer is no, <laughs> because um, since perfect creatures are perfect, um, they are of one mind with God when it comes to such questions as what should be done. Hmm. Um, there could never be a, 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 you know, a disagreement or a conflict there. It's not that um, they're all somehow forced into the same conclusion. It's that they see that the same conclusion is the right conclusion. Right, right. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Um, and if, if it's a toss-up, then any and every one of them will be happy to, you know, toss the coin. Right, right. Um, could you describe uh, what you call the plenum objection? Uh, and how, how you might deal with that. So the, it has to do with God not just creating one world, but a number of right. different worlds. Right. That, that strikes me as the most significant uh, objection, potentially. I, I might 
uh, preface that by noting that there's another kind of objection that is available, but would not be attractive to um, probably most contemporary philosophers of religion. And that is um, to hold a, a strong view about divine simplicity. Mm. Uh, so I, the thought is that um, God himself in his being and each and every one of his uh, essential properties are one and the same thing. Mm. His goodness is the same as his omnipotence, which is the same as his omniscience, which is the same as his eternity, which is the same as him, and so on. If you think that's a defensible view, then it is open to you to claim that God's uncreatedness, his aseity, as we say, is identical to all of his other properties. And so it can't be separated. Can't be separated. They're literally one and the same. And, and therefore, uh, a perfect creature that has any one of God's essential properties would have to have aseity, but it can't because it's a creature. Right. Right. So that would would seem to make it logically impossible for God to create perfect creatures. Mm. But other than that sort of line of thought, which, uh, as I say, I don't think is likely to be attractive to most people, though there are some philosophers who are in interesting ways trying to rehabilitate that doctrine. I did not know that. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, it's an interesting debate. Um, The plenum objection is is the worrisome one, and the plenum objection simply goes like this. Well, for all you know, heaven fails, God did create perfect creatures. Um, And, you know, bully for him. I mean, that, that was a good thing to do. But why should he stop with perfect creatures? Hmm. After all, there might be tons of other types of beings which are such that they're worthy of existence and such that the world would be have more value in it, right, if, if they did exist. Hmm. Plus, you have the added benefit of variety. Right, right. Right? I mean, a, a perfect creature world is, after all, a, a, a little bit dull. Um, and so why wouldn't God have created other things, uh, including even such woebegone creatures as ourselves, in addition to the perfect creatures? Why wouldn't he have created a kind of plenum of worthwhile existence? And I don't have a decisive argument uh, against that view, but I, I do have um, reasonably strong intuitions that um, it would be ill-advised for God to do that, and that it wouldn't be an improvement. Uh, first of all, because when it comes to amount of value, um, each of the perfect creatures has an infinite amount of value. Right. So. 
but my value is only finite. You add a finite bit to an infinite bit, what do you get? Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of trivial. Now that may be too simple. I mean, maybe maybe I have a and you have a, a kind of value that a perfect creature doesn't have. It's not commensurable with the value of a perfect creature. Sure. Um, it would sure seem that whatever value finite beings or a world of finite beings could bring about, it would need to be pretty darn good to justify the evils that come that's as the, a package That's the second deal. point. That's the second yeah. point, is that um, even if there are some uniquely worthwhile goods that could only be brought about by creatures such as we, um, there's a awfully high price to pay. Mm-hmm. For that, and God would have known that if He has foreknowledge. And why would He? Why would He do that? I mean, why would He? It may be. Tr- it may even be true that in some ways there's more value in the world, more net value in the world, if He creates us than if He doesn't. But you can't say, well, it's because He wants creatures that are free, because perfect creatures are free, right? Um, well, he wants company and things to worship him because the perfect creatures do that. Um, uh, well, he, he he just wants things that kind of manage to get their chin above the the baseline, yeah. as it were. Um, be, because what? Because he wants more variety. And right. I have an argument to the effect that variety for variety's sake isn't really worth the candle for a being like God who's incapable of being bored to yeah, begin with. Yeah, it does seem to be a kind of anthro, an anthropomorphic view there that, you know, attributing a capacity for boredom uh, or for a desire for yeah. variety purely for its own sake. Right. Um, Besides which, <clears throat> it often helps to remind ourselves of the uh, commitment that Christians have to the kingdom of God, mm. which is almost as boring. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Right. If, at if least on a, at least on some, some depictions of it. Yeah. Um, uh, I recently read a, a paper by Schellenberg in, in which he offers a, a logical problem of evil, and he kind of deals with some of these... Um, other goods that, you know, the goods that you're kind of referring to where, you know, perhaps it's good that um, finite creatures exist in a context of evil such that they can exercise uh, virtues like sacrifice or uh, development of moral character, for example. Um, but he points out that uh, if all goods are ultimately good because they are reflections of some fact about the divine, whether or not we have access to the purest form of that good, um, then we have to be able to say that those goods are, are mere tokens of a more general and pure type already found in God. Um, and so the question is, are, are we willing to create a world of evil like that for, for mere tokens uh, when presumably perfect creatures um, are just multiple, you're, you're going to be multiplying the purest form of those goods. Right. Um, yeah, I had a similar idea, which is that <clears throat> there is 
to some extent, something that grabs our intuitions uh, in the thought that there's a kind of real good that derives from um, not having your perfections handed to you on a silver platter, but having to work for them, having to struggle to gain moral maturity through some degree of trial and error and suffering and so on. Putting forth an effort. And and watching other people suffer. But it's not true of God that he had to go through all that to get his moral perfections. And it's not true of the perfect creatures that they have to. So either they are lacking some kind of a good thing, namely having had the experience of moral formation, um, or they're not. And if they're not, then what's so good about our having to go through that? Exactly. So uh, in in Selm's argument, uh, in, you know, more modern versions of the ontological argument, they kind of rely on a premise that um, necessary features are, are in some sense better than merely contingent features. So right. a necessary moral perfection is better than a merely contingently morally perfect character. Um, and so that would seem to me to be a, a rather decisive response to the goodness of moral growth. Well, who needs moral growth when you are necessarily morally perfect? Right. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a certain kind of... <clears throat> foreshortened perspective that is uh, I guess one might say anthropocentric here that is we we tend to gravitate rather naturally toward virtues that we understand in the context of human life Mm. but it's fair to say I think that the reason moral formation is so good is because it aims at something that we don't have without it Right, um, it's because it has this good good result. But if if you had the good result to start out with, then there wouldn't be any yeah. need for it. Yeah, the intuition for more, the goodness of moral growth wouldn't exist in a, right. a world populated by purely perfect creatures. Um, in your opinion, what do you think is the most promising uh, or interesting? I guess take your pick uh, argument in in the theist's toolbox. Uh. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like being asked, uh, well, who's your favorite philosopher? I said, well, apples and oranges. I do think that certainly one of the most interesting uh, arguments or developments has been the... Um, the development of uh, sophisticated fine-tuning arguments mm. by Robin Collins yes. and some others. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm open to the possibility that such arguments can be successful. Um, my, my main reaction, uh, my main response to Robin is, uh, look, um, we're talking here about the results of um, particle physics and cosmology. Mm-hmm. 
which are and have been in a, a state of considerable uh, flux for some time now, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. Um, and what people think now and what they will think 10 years from now are quite likely to be rather different stories, mm -hmm. perhaps even fairly fundamentally different stories. We don't know. And uh, what you're doing is, is uh, to some extent, holding your argument hostage to our ignorance, our ultimate ignorance about yeah. what the right story is. And so, fine. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe the the story as you are putting it forth uh, will turn out to be more or less the right picture. Mm -hmm. And maybe if that story is right, you can get a fine tuning argument out of it. But um, maybe we should just wait. <laughs> <laughs> Wait and see, rather than uh, quite so much, you know, fuss and feathers over something that that may be changing. Right. So that's that's one one issue that strikes me as um, as as a, a really interesting one that that wants to get sorted out eventually. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. For for myself. I, I, my worry about, about, uh, fine tuning arguments generally is that I'm not, I'm not convinced that they provide, uh, evidence in addition to what the existence of moral agents already does. So I think that, I think that quite clearly the existence of moral agents in whatever form they might be, uh, is, would be evidence for theism. Um, and so to that degree, I, I think there's some evidence for theism, but I'm not convinced that upon learning the narrow parameters that this is, that this counts as an extra boost of evidence. Um, well, it's, it, it's an interesting, it's a difficult uh, yeah. parsing of probabilities. Yeah, I mean, there are questions here about moral arguments for the existence of God, and, mm -hmm. and, and this is going to depend in part on what sort of view you have of moral ontology, yes. okay? I happen to have a, a moral ontology which doesn't have a problem per se with the existence of moral creatures in a world that doesn't have a god. Um, but there, there is a, a problem that, actually a couple of problems, that are uh, really deep questions in metaphysics generally that are waiting in the wings, um, and and one of these is just the mind-body problem. I mm. I think that uh, whatever is the right story there has considerable implications for theism, and uh, and I don't think anybody really has yeah. a solution to that problem, yeah, the, the... Or even really close to a solution to that problem. So that's, again, something that's kind of hanging there, yeah. you know, uh, over everybody's heads. And, uh, and and I don't know what the answer is. The, the other issue has to do with the way in which teleology figures in our ontological catalog mm. of the world. 
I am convinced that there are teleological facts. Um, they're just as real as, you know, facts like the fact that I have ten fingers, two arms. Uh, and, I, and I think they are, by and large, just as accessible. We, we know lots of things about what the teleo teleological organization is, especially of living organisms. Okay. The question is, how does that fit in to a naturalistic picture in right. which, you know, you, we're just bags of chemicals or, or, or um, whatever? And, um, of course, there have been considerable efforts to try to reduce, in some sense of reduce, teleolo teleological facts to facts about facts. the uh, natural facts about positive mm -hmm. feedback systems and negative feedback systems and so on. I'm not convinced that that really is successful yet mm -hmm. either and so there's a, another question that by my lights is important because I, I think in order to get a naturalistic uh, ethics you need to have teleological facts okay. yeah I, I, I've recently been converted uh, to a kind of irreducible normative realism um, and yeah, that's just that's just a change I, I've made recently, where I've just had to expand in that way. Yeah, um, and it's a it's a bizarre feeling, <laughs> <laughs> as it is for theists that come to the conclusion that they have to contract. Right. Um, yeah, you know, and, and there is at least in some quarters a a, a somewhat naive stereotype of atheists as being committed to uh, a very narrow kind of naturalism. Thorough reductionistic. And thoroughly reductionistic through. and so on. And um, there certainly are such. Yeah. And there are some theoretical virtues to trying to see if that'll work. Mm. Right. Um, but I, I and a lot of non-theists that I know are, are not really in that camp at all. I mean, I'm a Platonist when it comes to universals, for oh, example. Okay. And, you know, there, there are, there's abstract stuff all over the place in my world, yeah. for example. And, um, and I'm a libertarian when it comes to free will, and that's not that common for atheists, or at least for naturalists. Sure. So do you, but there's nothing that do you says, do consider yourself a, a naturalist, then? Yes, but... A rather the, liberal naturalist? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, as, as you know, if you're a friend of Matt's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the word naturalism uh, is attached to many right. different doctrines or sins, as some people would say. <laughs> um, I, I subscribe to... A quite minimal naturalism, actually uh, fairly closely akin to the way in which Al Plantinga has characterized naturalism. Just uh, that there are no such things as, as God? Yeah, now what he does, he gives you a list. There are no such things as gods, you know, and ghosts and okay. stuff like that. Um, uh, I, I offer a, a general metaphysical criterion, which is... Uh, to be a naturalist in my minimalist sense is to think that there aren't and arguably can't be 
any disembodied minds. Right. So I, I mean, I don't know what the story is about why minds have to be embodied, but right. but the guess is that they do. Yeah. And that that's enough to make you a naturalist, at least in the way I care about. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so setting aside, uh, I guess, specific arguments um, for and against theism, uh, in your opinion, what do you think are some of the more interesting or surprising, uh, I guess, broad developments in, in philosophy of religion since the, the, you know, the kind of renaissance of the 1960s? Well, that's a tough one, too. <laughs> um, because uh, I mean, really, <laughs> it's, it's really a phenomenon. In, in fact, with the demise of positivism, mm-hmm. uh, I anticipated that this, something like this would happen, that uh, um, Christian philosophy would no longer be considered professionally disreputable mm-hmm. and uh, it would start to to emerge and it, it certainly has um, and I I would I, I suppose I would be hard pressed to pick one or two things as being really maybe if I thought about it a, a while I could mm-hmm. come up with an answer to that question. I'm not sure I can answer it right off the bat because there have been so many... I mean, you know, there are areas such as um, uh, modal semantics, right? Um, and issues in the mind-body problem and, and various things that, that interconnect uh, with philosophy of religion but um, also have their home, as it were, in, in other areas of philosophy that have, have, been, have benefited, I think, from people thinking about issues in philosophy of religion. If you appreciate the content and the tone of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review of the show on iTunes or contributing a modest amount per episode to the Real Atheology Patreon. The Real Atheology intro music is by Thomas Smith, with all other music by Jason Camo of A Lost State of Mind. We want to thank our patrons, Matt Smith, Lucas Stewart, Matt Yellen, Richard Kane, Jeremy Zierce, Brandon McCleary, John Danaher of the Philosophical Disquisitions blog, Andrew Snyder, Jason McLoetta, Evan Wirtz, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Soge. Thank you for listening. <laughs>